You know, one of the things that um, the disciples asked Jesus, they didn't ask him for great power or, you know, to continue sending them out two by two so they could do all the miracles. They said, teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, he didn't say pray these exact words. He said pray like this. And the first thing he said is this, our Father. We've never called God Father. Never. I mean, that was, you, you, were, you were on very, very thin ice. I mean, they wouldn't even write his name out. But they just sort of put G in a dash and, and a D so they wouldn't say the word or they would use, you know, Adonai instead of Yahweh and, and this sort of thing. So they tell the Jews to say our Father. Well, what, a, what a radical and then he said, you know, have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you would think that, you know, we know his will is done in heaven and you would think God is sovereign, right? His will is going to be done here. But you start talking about the will of God and there are different concepts of the will of God. There's the decretive sovereign will of God where he says, let it be, and it is. He says, let there be light, and there's not a hesitation of light. But there's also the perceptive will of God, which has to do with God's precepts, his laws. He says, you shall not murder. Well, that's a perceptive will, that's the will of God, but we break it every day. So there are different concepts of the will of God, but we know that as Christians, we're to keep the will of God, no matter what emphasis you put on it, whether it's the perceptive will, whether it's the creative will, some things we don't have no choice, we have to obey, God says we're to do that, but with others, he tells us to do it and we're supposed to do it. We have the ability not to do it, but we don't have the right not to do it. And, um, I was thinking when Bill said, do you have any scripture that comes to mind? I want to see if the songs fit it or if I have a song that's going to fit it. Well, I had a scripture, but there's no way a song was going to fit it <laughs> because I was reading, I've been reading in Matthew. We're going to be in 1 John, but I've been reading in Matthew. And I've been reading a part that excites us all when I first started. It was a genealogy. Mm -hmm. 
and I've never been excited about the genealogy before, but somehow it hit me to actually look at it a little more closely. And in the first chapter of Matthew, the first, what, 17 verses are about the genealogy of Jesus. And when you stop and you read it, you know, without just, let me hurry up and get through this type of thing, it talks about, first of all, Judah, one of the children of of, of, uh, of uh, Jacob, and of course, you know, the, the head of the tribe of Judah later on, he fathered by Tamar, and Tamar was his daughter-in-law, who dressed up like a harlot because her husband had died, and Judah refused to let her marry another. So there were no children, and she wanted to have a child to continue the line. So she dressed as a harlot, and Judah has a child by her, and then finds out later who she is. All right, so this is one of the, the ancestors of, Je of Judah, of Jesus. Someone dressed like a harlot, <coughs> the daughter-in-law of Judah. And then you read a little further, and who do you get? You get Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, who was a harlot, right? She's the harlot that in Jericho hid the spies so that they didn't get captured or get killed. A harlot another ancestor of Jesus. And then you get a little further and you see Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was probably the most evil king that Judah ever had. I mean, just so foul that God says things about him he doesn't say about anybody else. And this is an ancestor of Jesus and it just goes on and on like that and all you can do is say God I wouldn't have done it like that <laughs> you know that's one of the 4,000 things that I wouldn't have done the way you do and you're just amazed at the glory and the power of God that he would do something like this and show I don't care who you are it makes no difference to me I can do what I can do I will do what I will do. And who are you to tell me how to do things? He does things that we just don't, we can't imagine. You know, why would you do it this way? Why would you take the most righteous man that ever lived and take everything away from him? Send affliction after affliction upon him just to prove to Satan that there are people that will stand by God no matter what you do, like he did with Job. You know, what, what, it's just, you see this whole thing, and you look at this thing with, with the refugees right now, and over and over in Scripture, you see where the plan of Satan is to do evil, and God flips it on its head, and he does good. He does it with Joseph. He does it with Job. He does it again and again with Manasseh, the most evil king that there is, 
And who does he have for a son? Josiah, one of the most godly kings of Israel, of Judah, the southern kingdom. God's going to do what God's going to do. Now, he calls us to pray, but he's going to do what he's going to do. And our prayers are not going to change him, but they're certainly going to change us, and we're going to be obedient because he commands us to pray. And this has got nothing to do with 1 John. <laughs> but anyway, you ask questions, and infantile minds roam all over the place, so that's the way it is. We're going to get to the first chapter, I mean the third chapter of 1 John in just a moment. You know, a lot of times we have people that come that don't have a real heavy background in Christianity, perhaps not very much of a background at all. And so you, you, you start teaching or speaking from, from Scripture, and you end up talking about people, and they don't have a clue who you're talking about. They've got no background in it whatsoever. They don't know Moses from anyone. They don't know Abraham from anyone. So you start talking about these things and they've got no way to put it together. And sometimes we have to sort of digress and, and say things that to most of us that have been Christians for a good while, we go, oh my goodness, do I have to listen to this again? And maybe the best way is sometimes just one-on-one -on -one with people that are not Christians or haven't been for very long so that they get a background. And other times maybe we just need a really brief reminder so that we understand that uh, we need to be clear ourselves and we need to be clear that they're not clear. So I just wanted to say a couple of things. You know, like why is it so important to read and explain and, and understand scripture? Why is it such a, a huge monumental deal? Why can't we just be kind to one another? Why can't we just say nice things? Why can't we just stand up here and tell stories, have lunch, laugh, and go home? Why is scripture so important? And the Bible tells us why. It says that from the beginning, man disobeyed God. The God that created him, that man believed the lie, that God's plan, God's way, left something out that man ought to have. It says that man believed the lie of Satan, the devil, above the truth of God. And when he did that, a terrible thing happened. And the terrible thing that happened was the entrance of sin. And not only sin into our first parents, Adam and Eve, but to the whole human race ever since. <coughs> Scripture tells us the story of man from the beginning till now. It tells us how God prepared a certain group, the Jews, to be his people. To receive his laws, to be a witness to all the other nations around them. about who God was, who the one true God in the midst of pagan idols everywhere 
who the true God was. But even though they witness miracle after miracle, even though they're the only group that has the law of God, they failed. And they failed because they wanted what every other group of men wanted. They wanted to please themselves and not God. They needed new hearts, just like everybody else needed a new heart. So at exactly the right time, the right time in history, God sent his only son so that they might see exactly what the invisible God was like and to make a way for them to have these new hearts that they so desperately needed. Not repaired hearts because the damage was too severe for a repaired heart, but a new heart. Hearts that are new because Jesus takes away the sin that destroyed the old heart and he replaces it with a new one that belongs to him, that belongs to everyone that believes and trusts in Jesus. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. When he talks about thinking in the heart, it refers to thoughtful reflection, to deep, penetrating thoughts, not just casual thoughts that flee through the mind and then disappear. It's not talking about some idea that's just a fleeting one. Rather, they're the thoughts that grip us in our inward parts and they shape our lives. The thoughts that we deeply meditate on. We are what we think. And when our thoughts are corrupted, our lives become corrupted too. Philippians 4.8, I apologize, Bill. <laughs> it says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is right, <clears throat> whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Dwell on these things. Deeply let these things penetrate your heart. Thinking about these things in a deep and thoughtful way leads us into actions that correspond to these thoughts. How can we be the truth without understanding of what the truth is? You can't. Truth, as far as the world views it, changes all the time. It's whatever the majority of people or whatever the government says it is. And God says something quite different. He says his word is truth. He says Jesus' word is truth. He says the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. They don't change because the truth never changes. And we, as God's people, are to know the truth, to love the truth, and study the truth so that it will continually change us. 
the scriptures are truth, and they accomplish God's purpose. They change us to be more and more like Jesus. They enable us to recognize truth from error. They show us what God loves and what he hates. And they show us how to live in a world that's gone crazy because of sin. In 1 John, the Apostle John is doing all these things. He says he's writing to us so that we may not sin. He says he's writing to us that we may know that our sins have been forgiven. He says he's writing about the truth of Jesus Christ because it fills us with complete joy. John says he's writing to us so that we'll remember that loving God means keeping his commandments and loving our brother. The first three verses of 1 John 3, and we're going to get through about two-thirds of the chapter maybe, which um, if Bill were doing it, it would take until December. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we, we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now are we children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. What greater love could God have for us than to call us his children? It's amazing. It's, it's beyond any sort of quick comprehension at all. It takes a depth of, of thinking about it to even begin to understand it. It's an astonishing thing that God would bestow his love on us. And it's so whether the world recognizes it or not. In fact, the world obviously doesn't recognize it because the children of God and the children of this world are drastically different. Why? And the reason they're drastically different, of course, is because the world doesn't recognize, recognize Christ. And John readily admits that he doesn't know the exact state and condition of the redeemed in heaven. What we do know is that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the order of events that John knows is plain. First, Jesus will appear. Then we're going to see him like he is. And finally, we're going to be like him. Man was created, of course, in the image of God. But that image was greatly marred, greatly distorted. 
by the fall into sin. For those in Christ, God's image has been stamped on us again. Ephesians 4.24 tells us that the new man, which we become at conversion, was created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We don't have the full revelation of what we shall be. It's enough to know that on the last day and through all eternity, we're going to be with Christ and we're going to be like Christ. Knowing this, the Christian who fixes his hope on Christ's return will purify himself morally. Christ is righteous and we must practice righteousness. Verses 4 through 6 reads, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. <clears throat> no one who abides in him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion against God. It's a lawless attitude against God. The heretics in John's day were no different than the heretics today. They seemed to think that questions of morality were of no consequence, just like, just like we conceal sin today by using euphemisms, calling them by names that are innocuous and don't have any kind of deep meaning to them at all, flowery words like personality problems, that's just the way it is, that's just a white lie, all these flowery phrases we do to conceal sin. John says it's a violation of God's holy law. And this is important because the first step toward holy living is to, to recognize the truth and the wickedness of sin, the true nature of sin. If you don't recognize it, it's not a big deal. And we also have to know and confess that sins can only be taken away by the one who is sinless, Jesus. <clears throat> the logical conclusion that follows is if Jesus' nature is sinless and he came to remove sin, then anyone who abides in him doesn't sin, and if you sin, you don't know him. Now that's what John says on the surface. John is not saying that it's impossible for a believer to commit a sin. He's already said earlier in 1 John that it is possible. What he is saying is that a sinful life does not characterize a child of God. And anyone who does live in continual sin that lives a continuous sinful life is not a child of God. Verses 7 and 8. 
Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. To be on guard because there are false teachers everywhere. These false teachers he calls in other places the tools of Satan. And they're seeking to lead Christians into error. He says the one who practices righteousness is righteous. The false teachers somehow in their minds and in what they were saying, they taught that you could be righteous without practicing righteousness. And John says that's impossible. It cannot be done. Sin breaks the law of God. And where does it come from? It originates from the devil. Satan sins from the moment of his proud rebellion against God. And because sin is his characteristic activity, everyone who sins shows a character that's derived from him. The character of Jesus, however, is to save. John first told us that Jesus came to take away sins, and now he says he also came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Now the word destroy here in Greek does not mean annihilate. What it means is to conquer. He came to conquer the works of the devil. He came to deprive the works of the devil of their force against us. If the purpose of Christ first appearing, or if that purpose <coughs> was to remove sin and to, to undo the works of the devil, then we can't compromise either with sin or the devil, or in fact we're fighting against Christ. Verses 9 and 10 reads, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. So again, what does John when he says a Christian does not and cannot sin. The Greek words, again, give a clearer meaning than the English word does. Uh, a lot of times it would be so much better to have adjectives 
two or three describing a word rather than just one, which we do in English. The Greek doesn't mean an isolated act of sin, but a habit of sin. It means the practice of sin. Cannot sin means we are not able to habitually sin. Even isolated sins, of course, are incompatible with the character of God. Perpetual sin, persistent sin, is impossible, is what John is saying. It's impossible because God's nature resides in the Christian. And if the nature of God resides in us, then it's impossible to continually sin, to perpetually sin, to have persistent sin. We need to remember, perhaps, that John is writing partly against the heretical Gnostics of his day. And there were at least two groups of these Gnostics. The first said that possession of superior and hidden knowledge, which they had, made them perfect. And so they were blind to sin. And they denied that sin even existed. The second group said that sin didn't matter because it couldn't harm them, even if it did exist. So they were indifferent to it. John says righteousness and love are inseparable in the character of God, and they must be inseparable in a Christian also. And as before, John says there are only two groups. He's contrasted all the way through his letter, light and darkness, good and evil, God and the devil, no gray. And here he says there are two groups, and they're opposites. These are the children of God and the children of the devil. Our Father is either divine or diabolical. There's no other. There's no third. God is the Father of all men only in the vague physical sense that he's the creator of all men. In the intimate spiritual sense, God is not the father of all men, and all men are not his children. And John here is only echoing what Jesus said when he told the number of the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. Verses 11 through 13 read, for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, brethren, if the world hates you. gospel doesn't change. And we'll be safe, all of us, if we hold fast to the message that the apostles have given us. That's the message that they heard from the beginning. 
the ones that John's speaking to. And that's the message that we heard from Megan when we came Christmas. The truth about Jesus and Christian conduct does not change. And the message is that we should love one another. And the contrast that the Bible gives is Cain. And his hatred originated in the devil. That's where it came from, the wicked one. And this is the one that slew his brother. Why? Not because, <coughs> not because his brother Abel did anything wrong, but because Cain's own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Behind the hatred was jealousy. Cain was jealous of Abel's superior righteousness. And that's exactly the same envy that made the Jewish priests demand the death of Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus' righteousness. The natural sequence is this. Jealousy, hatred, murder. That's the way it is in Scripture. It's the way it always has been. It's the way it still is. Righteousness always provokes a violent reaction in the unrighteous. So we should expect this if we're acting the way God's nature intends us to act in us. Cain's descendants are the world. And the world displays the qualities of its father. Cain. So we're not to be surprised if the world hates us. By its hatred, the world is simply giving evidence of its true spiritual condition. And that's death. Verses 14 through 18. We know that we pass out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, <coughs> and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Just like murderous hatred is a sign that we do not belong to the family of God, the presence of brotherly love is a certain sign that we do belong to the family of God. Through the new birth, we passed out of death into life. Love is the surest test of having life, just like it was shown earlier in 1 John, in the second chapter, that love is the test of being in the light. According to John, love, life, and light belong together, and so do hatred, darkness, and death. It's evident from this why true Christians who have passed from death into life 
will hunger for Christian fellowship. Where else are you going to find love, truth, life? You're not going to find it in the world because John says darkness, death, wickedness, hatred, evil characterizes the world. And if that's your preference, then we need to examine who we are. Verse 15 again. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Lack of love is evidence of spiritual death. John's not saying that a murderer cannot be forgiven, but that an unrepentant murderer does not have eternal life abiding in him. It follows that the one that hates his brother doesn't have eternal life in him either because to hate is to be a murderer. It's to wish the one we hate to perish. Unchecked hate yields the fruit of murder is what John is saying. A person who habitually hates his fellow man is a potential murderer. He's unsaved. When he says, we know love by this, it means we have an experience, we have experienced God's love. It's a permanent possession. We've expressed, excuse me, we've experienced it because Jesus laid his life down for us. Jesus showed perfect love in his self-sacrifice for us and self-sacrifice is supposed to characterize Christians. It's supposed to characterize our lives also. Hate's negative. Hate seeks the other person's harm and leads to action against him. Love is positive, seeks the other person's good, and leads to action for the person, even to the point of self-sacrifice. Hatred of Cain led to murder. Jesus' love led to self-sacrifice. It's an example for us to follow. We should be willing to lay down our lives for the brother. But true love doesn't reveal itself just in the supreme sacrifice, but it shows itself in lesser sacrifices too. Not many of us are called to lay down our lives our brother some, in some heroic action, but we are called to share our possessions with those in need. It's significant here that in verse 16, the word brethren is used, which is plural. While in verse 17, the word brother is used, which is singular. It's significant because it's easier to be enthused and passionate about humanity in general than it is to love individual people. We can be in love with this group because they're going through hard stuff. But when you bring in one family and say, okay, love them and share with them, all of a sudden the warts and all are obvious. <coughs> it's not so easy to love them. One, one, one person has, said, has said, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Mm -hmm. 
seeing your brother's need doesn't mean to give him a passing glance, but to look long enough to understand the circumstances. <clears throat> if you have the means to help, yet harden your heart and refuse to show compassion in a, in a way that's practical, what's the use of talking about the love of God? Jesus said much the same thing in James 2, where James says, a brother, excuse me, he says, if a brother or sister without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Declarations of love are not enough. Loving actions have to accompany loving words. Love originates in God. It shows itself in self-sacrifice. And it's evidence, evidence of eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, once again, uh, First John is such a uh, seemingly simple book on the surface, but it's not simple. It's deep and it's profound and it penetrates and it causes us to see the heart of God and it exposes our heart too, Lord. We know that when we see you, we're going to be like you. And we also know that we're certainly not there yet. And we pray that you would continue to mold and shape and purify and refine us so that we get, even before we see you, Lord, more and more like you. We pray for a heart of compassion, a heart of understanding, and a heart of wisdom. And we ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus. We um, are going to take communion today, and it's been a while, and um, Bill, are you going to 